Hi, everybody, and thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to Equestrian Podcast. I'm Caroline, and I'm here with my co-host, Annie. Hello, we're glad to be back because we, <laughs> we took a little bit of a hiatus there. But we're back, and we have a really great topic for today. It is barn skills that are life skills. So excited. Yes. Which seems like it should be a common sense topic. Like, I feel like people are kind of like, well, duh. But it would blow your mind. It should blow your mind. It might blow your mind. Hopefully today's podcast is enlightening and transformative for you. The amount of things that you can take from the barn to real life and or the amount of people who are wildly successful in one sphere or the other, but can apply the same philosophies and principles and practices to both. So today we're going to break it down a little bit. We have broken down barn skills that are life skills into three main coexisting categories. And they all sort of work in that, like, you can't have one and be bad at the others. Those are accepting responsibility, problem solving, and relationships and communication. So first things that under accepting responsibility or kind of accountability that I remember kind of almost inspired this whole topic was if you blame your horse for everything, God bless your husband or wife or respond your life partner, children, coworker. Because if you can insert your your own for every trading problem that you come into, you're always like finding someone else that is responsible for whatever misfortune you're having. Boy, are you really going to like find a lot of future misfortunes until you take responsibility? I feel like it's one of the most, at least for me, one of the most profound processes of maturation in the entire horse community. I remember being a young horse girl and hearing nothing is ever the horse's fault and being like, that's stupid. I don't get it. And the older I've gotten, the longer I've been doing this, the more I'm like, freaking crap. They were right. It's always my fault. But it's like, no matter what it is, it's my fault. But I feel like you have to look at horses and children as like, they're only the products of their environment. And then once you switch into adulthood, you have to realize like, yes, I'm a product of my environment, but I now need to change either my environment or I need to change my behavior because at this point I am now responsible for how I act and absolutely no one else. So horses and children, yes. Which is exactly spot on. Yeah. And if you don't like horses and children doing, then you are a part of that equation. If you don't, if you don't like like A plus B equals C, you don't like C, and you can't necessarily change that particular behavior in your horse, change the you part of the equation and change how you interact with your horse or change something that you have control of in the equation, and perhaps the outlook will change. And that's spot on. And that's where I think a lot of people get lost in in that analogy is they're like, you mean to tell me that if I bring my horse out of a stall and out of the clear blue sky, they bite me and they stampede me and they buck me off. That's my fault. And I don't think that that's the intent of accepting responsibility at all. What it means is with horses and 
probably children. I don't know. They kind of, children kind of scare me much more than horses do. Um, <laughs> what it means is they are, there's an element of volatility there. There's an element of autonomy in a separate being that you cannot account for all the time. But what you can account for is yourself. And that means that you can always accept responsibility for creating the solution. You can always accept responsibility for stepping away from a dynamic, even if it was created through poor behavior of an animal, to step back enough from that dynamic and go, how do I solve this? Mm -hmm. And to me, that's where accepting that responsibility comes in. It doesn't necessarily mean that somebody, some other thing is never going to mess up because we all mess up. It means that your job as a leader, your job in that dynamic is like the buck stops with me. Like the buck. Ha. <laughs> See what that I did there? Clever. <laughs> it means that. You... <laughs> yeah. That's why they pay yeah. me the big bucks or yeah. no bucks, if you will. Um, oh my gosh, so I, I did it again. Buck. Oh my gosh. That's unbelievable. <laughs> we just that's, right now. It's fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, moving on. What the fuck? Um, and I think also <laughs> one of the other Rain things. Rain it in. Rain it in. So leadership. Wait, <laughs> why are you still laughing? <laughs> and then anger. anger Rain it in. Oh, gosh. Dang. <laughs> I think that this just like highlights the fact that we're just like horribly corny by nature. Like, because you can't even make it stop. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, because I made four buck references in a row, and your solution was rain, rain it, it in. in. <laughs> Dear Lord. Um, anger management. I digress. Moving on. You are yeah. correct. Now we're into anger management. Um, another thing that horses teach you, it's almost always like less is more. If you like softening your approach is almost always the solution. Like anger is never helpful. Um, I think that... Um... I remember distinctly um, the family that I used to work for, who's wonderful, and they had a toddler. And I remember one day we were sitting in the living room and this toddler looked her mom like dead in the eyeballs and she's sitting at the base of the step and her mom goes, don't you go up those stairs, you're going to get in trouble. Don't you do it. And she like dead stare down eye contact with her mom, like reaches out with her hand, places her hand on the step. And her mom's like, I see what you're doing. Don't you go up those stairs. And then she like stands up and like slowly while maintaining dead in the eye, eye contact, like reaches out and put her foot on the step. And I feel like horses do that too. Like, have you ever been, had a horse in cross ties and like they take a step forward and you make them take a step back and they take a step forward and you make them take a step back and they take a step forward and you make them take a step back. Like that stuff has the potential to make your blood boil even it's in if it's in stupid simplicity and because you know that they know that they're just irritating mm-hmm. you. But again, as the leader, as the person who does not have or should aspire to not having that level of volatility, you have to be the one who can't like freak the heck out. Not that there are not times for a stern and forceful reprimand, but that has to be done from a place of productivity and not from a place of emotional reaction. Mm-hmm. And obviously we're not perfect, but we have to have the ability to control our emotions. And that is the biggest, probably overarching in all of this, um, barn skills, that's life skills. And you see it all the time. You see people 
who are great mothers or great wives or great at work. And then they get to the barn and they don't have the ability to regulate their emotions with their horse or vice versa. You see somebody who's a spectacular trainer and is so empathetic and is so compassionate and absorbs so many, you know, downfalls. And then they're like snarky with their husband or like short tempered with their children, but it's all the same philosophy. It's you have, if every single person around you, every single animal around you has an element of volatility because you're not in their head, you're not living the experiences they're living, and you're not reacting to the same things in the same way that they're reacting to, but you can always control your response. Mm-hmm. Spot on. Um, as far as accepting responsibility and dressing for the weather, that was just my little funny haha because... I, and this is one of the first things that I thought of in barn skills that are life skills. If you're a horse girl, you know this. If you're a horse girl, you know that you have never shown up to an outdoor seasonal event dressed cute when it's cold. But I guarantee you, you have shown up to an outdoor event dressed bundled when it's cold. And you see the girl over there in like the cute little dress and cardigan and you're like, hmm. I'm smarter. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And so that was just my little moment of levity is that it does, it makes you responsible for, and on that level um, to, to go a little bit beyond dressing for the weather, you accept responsibility to be prepared to encounter a situation um, with, with an element of realness that you're not just like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to be so cute. I'm so superficial. And it's going to be great. It makes you learn like, all right, we're going to be warm. We're going to be prepared. We're going to think ahead. We're going to be proactive. And again, super, super huge component of that in real life. Your responsibility isn't in the superficial. It's in the tangible and in the tactile and in the execution of what it takes to be successful. Often, you know, living in a, in a superficial capacity, living in like a aesthetically driven, not that you need to be like a hobo all the time. Um, but living purely on that superficial level will not lend you to a level of preparedness to like buckle down and get to work. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's, the perfect- and I think barn girls know that. I, I agree. I think that's the perfect segue into our next topic because we all know that with horses, preparedness is key because literally anything can happen at any moment so the and problems arise constantly so problem solving I think for me is one of the most important things that I've ever learned working or living or functioning in a barn is just like it's just problem solving skills and it applies in every aspect of my life it was like one of the big the first problems I ever had I remember having like as a young child and I kind of we talked a little bit about in like our life stories when we first started doing this like I wanted a horse and my dad said okay so what's stopping you and it was like oh uh, okay so I have a problem how am I going to solve this and he would say like what do you want and how do you get it and then I was like that was like my very first experience with problem solving and I feel like it's only ever it's only it's only just gotten grander kind of as I've been become more and more involved in the horse world and I think one of the most valuable experiences I had was being um, a barn manager and an equine manager on a at on like a college scale because there was 
no one else, like, you know, I was responsible for all of these horses and there was no one else to go to. Like, it was my job to solve all of these problems. And I had to, like, creatively find solutions for, like, 30 different animals. And the solutions were kind of always different. And sometimes they had to be creative. Sometimes they had to be, like, by the book. But I feel like problem solving is just one of the most valuable lessons that I've learned working with horses. And in that vein, uh, two things specifically related to your story in particular is um, like we had talked about, like, it's not stupid if it works. Like, how many times have you fixed something? I know we all joke about like Baylor twine and duct tape, but like you didn't you have a horse that was like chronically colicking, chronically colicking and nobody could solve it. And it ended up being like a last ditch effort. And the vet was like, try Jack Daniels mm-hmm. and like ended up saving the horse's life. And like, okay, you can say that's stupid all day long, but the horse was going to be dead and now it's alive. So, (laughs) you know, not that you should lead off with the stupid. um, But it goes into the next. But like, yeah, in the course of trying everything, like sometimes you need to try everything. Exactly. Yeah. And just trying things like just like you know, it's a lot of people get deterred after they've tried like two or three things and it doesn't work. But perseverance in like trying, like not being afraid to try like 30 things. And you might have to try like 30 things before you find the right answer. And you have to think like, think of how many people give up after trying like two or three things. And they say stuff like, this horse can't do that. And I'm like, well, you've only tried three ways to get it to work. Maybe if you tried 30 ways, you'd figure out a creative solution to solving. Right. Throw everything to the wall and see what yeah, sticks. Absolutely. Um, and something that I think that you just recently did that I really loved and thought was super cool is you'd recently encountered um, some saddle fitting obstacles. And there seemed like there was like one kind of like blatant, big, obvious like maybe not super exciting solution. And so what you did was you kind of like stepped out of your own headspace, sat down and developed as many alternative creative solutions or thought pathways to that dynamic as possible. And just the exercise of doing that makes you feel so much more empowered because it makes you feel like you have some, it makes you feel like you have some kind of element of control beyond just like, problem here's the only way I know how to solve it like it forces you to get out of your comfort zone like I made I made a I made like a part-time job out of finding a company that I wanted to work with and I wrote down all of my possible options I wrote down all my possible solutions I wrote down every single company I could work out work with I wrote down every single rider that I knew what they wrote in and I got feedback whether they were happy, whether they were dissatisfied. I wrote down like I had all these questions that I wanted answered by every um, fitter, by every company. And I and I really pursued every avenue that I felt like you identified I could. all of the riders that yeah. you respected and who, what saddles they rode in. Just that amount of research and in really takes you to the next level as a competitor and as an industry member is it's not just like, uh, well, it is what it is. You Mm -hmm. took a proactive role in, Hey, I've got a problem and I'm going to figure out how many types of solutions I can come up with. And then if I end up at my end game solution, I know that I've ended up there in the confidence that I've explored all these other options as well. Exactly. Yeah. I think that it's a really great lesson to learn that like you just 
taking like when you when you reach an obstacle that you think is impossible to solve just kind of like brainstorming every fantastical solution to your problem is kind of eye-opening and I literally ask myself like if money was no object if time was no object like if um, proximity was no object yeah. like how could I solve these problems and then it just kind of gets the creative juices flowing to every flowing and to one every thing that we're solution. super blessed with in the horse community but anyway. we discussed this the other day was we're so privileged in this industry if you are a baseball player or a basketball player or an or a football player and you aspire to be a professional you do not have access to the top tier athletes in those sports you don't professional athletes are insulated from access to the rest of the world for the most part your top tier equestrian competitors still have to pay their bills still have to interact with clients and still have to be on some level accessible to the rest of the world which means we have the privilege of being able to at least have the slight window of reaching out to those people for engagement, which is such an interesting component of this industry that I think really helps with problem solving. And like, you know, one of the things we talked about the other day was like gain access to the people that you respect the most and how much would it cost for 30 minutes of their time? Could you pay for a a consultation phone call? Could you pay? Because those people teach lessons and they have clients and they hold clinics and they do things like that. So what would it take how hard would you have to work or how could you creatively problem solve to gain access to that person and be like, I will compensate you for 20 minutes of your time. You could never do that. If you want to do that with an NFL player, um, I wouldn't say you could never, but it would be radically more difficult. Um, So back to in the vein of perseverance and problem solving, I was listening to a podcast uh, a while ago from a fitness competitor and it's one of my favorite podcasts and it deals with fitness and nutrition and it's by, um, one of the winningest uh, fitness competitors of all time. And her coach said something incredibly profound. And he said, the amazing thing is she's been competing for so long and has been so good. There have been dozens of other people that could have taken these titles from her. There are dozens of other people that could have beat her, that could have been her, that could have held the records that she has, but they quit along the way. So she didn't have to beat all of those people She only had to beat the people that kept showing up, which is a radically smaller number of people than the people who start out with just pure unadulterated talent, but get deterred along the way. And that's an encouraging perspective from a a problem solving place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of the battle is making sure that you yourself don't get beat by just making sure that you keep showing up. Absolutely. And you get comfortable failing. Um, we like to say all the time, like the succeeding at failing and seeing failure. I'm actually reading a book right now that talks about like, for some people, failure is an end game. And for other people, it's just a tactical shift. And what does failure mean to you? Does it mean, okay, go home? Or does it mean pivot and reattack? Yeah. Like just in my saddle research, like every company that I felt like let me down, was one step closer to I found that I found a company that was not going to let me down and like the more frustrated and the more failure I experienced was the more motivated that I got to actually like stop what I'm doing and like wholly reevaluate my program and like decide to like distance from certain companies and really move forward 
was the ones that were going to work for me. And it was like, not something that I wanted to do. And it's probably something that I've been like putting off for a solid year. But it finally got to the point where when I had failed enough, I was like motivated to make a change. And so you could look at it as like, I've just been failing, failing, failing. But you can also look at it as like, I failed into succeeding. Like I failed. Into and not only did you fail problem. into succeeding by continuing to fail forward, you ended up with the most ideal success rather than having like an earlier, smaller success. Often the more undeterred you are by failure, the greater yield your success will ultimately be. And I think that's a really um, exciting trait too, is like mm -hmm. you stay committed, you stay dedicated you keep accepting responsibility. You keep figuring out a way to solve a problem and you keep just persevering. And ultimately you will land upon a greater success. That's probably a greater success now than you would have had, mm -hmm. had you gotten a smaller win nine, 10 months ago. So kind of like the failure exactly. is a part of that, which leads to developing relationships your relationship with your horse, your relationship with your people. Now more than ever, people have lost the ability to function relationally like normal people. Yeah, that's real true. And I think that that speaks to um, maybe on a biological level how kind of dumb we are in certain respects, but it goes back to the self-awareness of accepting responsibility for your behavior and choosing to respond in a better fashion than what your environment dictates. I was going to say, I think well, this is the perfect way where you can see where your relationship with horses positively affects your relationship oh, 100%. with people. Because you really can see how you're like a part of, you know, a relationship like you can directly see how your actions influence and what emotional else, state else. you carry into your ride absolutely you yeah. know often dictates the ride that you have just as in, in dynamics with people if you're to carry aggression or you know short-temperedness or a lack of patience into a dialogue or relationship with a human they're going to respond to you in like a tentative uh you know maybe not aggressive, but like they're ready to like get their hackles up back at you. Um, mm -hmm. There's like an, a palpable energy that like puts them on the defense. Yeah. A really fascinating example of this is uh, Cassie Mowry is one of the futurity barrel racers that I uh, respect the most. And she was telling a story on a podcast a couple of years ago that um, she was riding two very different colts their futurity year. And one was kind of like sleepy and dopey and needed you to really like grab a hold of him. He needed you to like be a really strong jockey. He needed a really um, aggressive rider. And then she had another colt that was very sensitive and very delicate and very just like needed a little bit more confidence. And she just so happened to have them like almost back to back in the same drag at a futurity and had the one that needed a little bit more of a strong presence first. And she said she got off of that one and somebody handed her the next one and he like recoiled from her. And she said in that moment as a trainer, I had the responsibility to recognize I've got to change my energy immediately and like stepped back, took 
like a minute to like settle her breathing, change her energy, change her demeanor, and then reapproach him. And I thought that that was such a very practical example of our animal relationships and our human relationships. I mean, let your husband call you while you're trying to lunge a horse that's being a butthead and see how you answer the phone. It isn't, hi, honey, I'm so glad to see you, hear you. It's, what do you want? (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, one of the other things that we talked about um, in relationships that I thought was so astute, because there's really nothing like barn drama. Barn drama is like the worst kind of drama. And so, like, being able to recognize scenarios that you would like to avoid or learn to recognize like people or borders or just like learning how to avoid that and learning how to like like for me I almost feel like I have to have like tunnel vision like what am I here for what is my goal what am I gonna when I go home at the end of this what do I hope to have achieved and like if it's not all of that barn drama I just like stay in my lane just like have the tunnel vision of like I'm here because I want to enjoy the presence of my horse and like if someone's going to try and come up and start something with me or gossip about something I'm just gonna like quietly respond in like kind of a non-committal kind of oh wow isn't that well that's interesting and just go about like maintaining the relationship with my horse so that it doesn't like take away from what we're working on and like man if that isn't just like (laughs) such a huge yeah part of just human existence is being able to kind of recognize that and just put your blinders on and and here's my psa for the day to the people hopefully not annie's mother or my mother uh the other people that listen to this podcast who think well what if there's an issue at my barn and (laughs) i'm trying to solve it i'm talking to you karen there is a difference between gossip and perpetuating drama and assuming responsibility to handle an issue with the people at your barn. When I previously worked at a large boarding facility, I had a subset in our contract that specifically dealt with conflict and problem resolution. And the main tenet of that little code of ethics was if you are ever dissatisfied with something at this barn, if there is ever an issue that you encounter at this barn, if you ever have a question about anything at this barn, call me, text me, email me, flag me down day or night. I will be so happy to help you solve the problem, fix the issue, or come up with a solution. What is directly counterproductive is if you tell your roommate, your 12 friends, and you whip all of the boarders into a frenzy over some potential problem, but you don't actually address the issue with anyone that can solve it. And that circle, that kind of, that kind of encapsulates all of these different topics that we're talking about is so often we kind of like loophole it a little bit. We're like, I'm not actually gossiping. I'm not, I don't do barn drama. I just, I don't do barn drama. But those people are the people that kind of like highbrow, assume that they're not doing barn drama because they're better than barn drama. Instead, they're just like talking about what needs to be fixed. But in reality, Karen, you just barn drama in a way. You're not solving any problems. So the responsible, mature adult way, yeah, unless you're, which is the same thing that you have to be with your horses. When there's an issue, 
you know, how many times do you see somebody be like, oh my gosh, my horse is such a jerk. They keep doing this. They keep doing that. They keep doing this. They complain to 84 people. They become a quote unquote, an asshole where they ask 47 people for their input on the problem. And everybody knows that Sally Sue's horse, I don't know, acts like a punk in the cross ties, but have they actually assumed responsibility for handling it? I think no. Yeah. If you, if you, yeah, there are ways to solve problems and oftentimes chatting with 50 different people is really it's just gossip. a way of. Which is know, fine. It's free entertainment, it but we have to keep in mind that the world that we create is also the world we have to live in. And if you create a toxic environment for your horse, if you create a space of stagnation or frustration or aggression, be it with your barn community, be it with your animal, be it with your family, be it at your office, what you create, you then you thus have to also live with. You have to live in that space of hostility or aggression or mm-hmm. gossip or pettiness or snark. You have to live there. So why would you do that? Mm-hmm. That's the end 100%. of my, my PSA. So is there anything else that you want to touch on in relationships? I think across the board, you know, we can come up with a million different things that translate from barn to real life and vice versa. Um, But I think that we've kind of encapsulated our favorite, maybe trifecta and and some various components within those. Um, So moral of the story, find ways to accept responsibility, find ways to solve your problems creatively and invest in your relationships in a productive and in a growth-oriented way. As long as you're seeking growth, you're seeking betterment, and you're seeking to do things in an educated and in a careful, constructive way, you might fail, but you'll fail forward. Absolutely. Totally agree. I think we're good. So, on that note, if you would like to reach out to Caroline or I, our email is equestrianpodcast at outlook.com. That's E-Q-U-E-S-T-R-I-E-N-N-E. And you can also follow us on Instagram, equestrian underscore podcast. Um, and I think that's it. And right? Yeah, that's all. We're super, super, super excited that you've made it this far thank you so much for listening to us today and we are going to be back in the groove of trying to accept responsibility problem solve and augment our relationships as we continue to try to bring you high quality introspective podcasts from an east coast barrel racer and a west coast dressage rider in a unified and friendly capacity